Hi, Pradeep. Welcome to The Blueprint. Thanks so much for coming on. Thanks a lot, Simmer, for having me. Um, and just to kind of start off, uh, what made you want to pursue uh, an electrical engineering degree at U of I? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it, it's kind of interesting. I've always had a knack for the tangible items um, that that's around the world. Um, growing up, I had a lot of uh, fun playing with Legos and Connect. And I just wanted to be in the intersection of technology and the physical product uh, and the lifestyle that evolves around um, just tangible goods. And I knew that it was be something to do with computers. Um, and really, your two options are computer science and electrical engineering. Uh, so I decided to kind of pursue the route of electrical engineering um, while still learning a little bit about computer science throughout my years at U of I. Nice. Um, and then at U of I, was there uh, a certain class or professor that left an impact on you? Um, there's there's a lot of professors that have left uh, an impact on me. Um, I will say one of the, the more notable professors I got to work with was Professor Jose Shutan, who ended up being my undergraduate research professor. He runs an incredible lab um, called the IC Design Lab. Um, and so back in the day, we used to work on something called a CERDIS, uh, which is a serializer, deserializer. Um, but, you know, he really kind of was the first person that introduced me to the applications of electrical engineering into the real world, into the industry, rather than the theoretical understandings of what we learn in your more traditional academic settings, which are in the classroom. Yeah, that sounds really interesting. Um, and then, yeah, I noticed uh, afterwards you decided to uh, pursue a master's at UPenn. Can you kind of describe uh, why you decided to further your education as opposed to going directly into industry? Yeah, uh, I, I actually graduated uh, U of I in three years, uh, and I felt like my time in college was kind of cut short. Um, and one thing I really wanted to learn on was kind of get more in-depth analysis on a lot of the core fundamentals of engineering that I had learned through the first three years and understand how they apply to the industry and how I can leverage that. Um, and so I decided I'd get a higher education in electrical engineering and thought I'd try a different part of the country out. Um, so while I did get into U of I, I decided not to, to st continue staying there, um, though I fondly miss it. Uh, and my time at, at UPenn was great. Uh, got a chance to understand how a lot of things I learned in undergrad uh, can be applied further into the industry um, and more specifically into robotics and consumer electronics. Awesome, awesome. And yeah, so after, after that, um, you went into industry for a few years and then ended up at a big tech company at Apple. Um, can you kind of describe that, that progression of working up to um, or gaining, gaining experience in, in, at, at different companies and finally uh, going into uh, big tech, which in, in your position, you were um, a program manager, a technical program manager? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, it wasn't a direct path um, to me working at Apple. Um, during my time at Penn, I spent my summer at Raytheon Space and Airborne Systems out in Goleta, California, which is the city right next to Santa Barbara. Um, and I got some uh, great experiences working in the IC design team out there. 
Uh, I actually ended up signing a full-time offer with them. Um, however, when I had joined Raytheon, I actually had the shortest stint there. I quit in 10 days. Um, yeah, I think I just realized that uh, the defense industry was just not for me. Uh, you know, I was in sunny California um, and I was kind of locked up in uh, what they literally called the cave, which was a room with no windows um, for eight hours a day. And, I, and you know, when you're in your young 20s, that's not the place that you want to be. Um, so I quit without really a job in hand, and I ran into um, a local startup called Tracker. Um, and I met the CEO, and we really connected. I think one of the things that they really needed was someone that had experience in hardware engineering and could lead a team. Um, and I was looking for an opportunity to take my skill set and apply it into a position where I'd have a lot of responsibility and would directly impact the product. Uh, so about a couple days after I quit Raytheon, I joined Tracker as their lead hardware engineer. Um, and I spent nine months there. It was really great, actually. Tracker was the, the first place where I got to apply a lot of the, the core engineering um, fundamentals uh, in a real-world setting. Um, because when you look at IC and, and Raytheon and stuff that I was doing there, there's a lot of simulations, a lot of things that you do on your computer, um, but you never get to feel and hold that that finished tangible product. Um, and if you remember, one of the main reasons I wanted to get into electrical engineering is so I could work on a physical tangible product. Um, and Tracker really gave me that experience, um, you know, opening up the product, soldering it with my own hands. Um, you know, I did a lot of coding and firmware as well. So it was just a really great opportunity, great experience. Uh, learned a lot. More notably, one of the things that I got to learn at Tracker that I had not gotten anywhere else, including my academic time at both U of I and at Penn, was engaging and working with manufacturers. And I think that was really what helped solidify this entire engagement in the hardware industry and things that you just don't learn about, is that outside of just the design, there's an entire aspect of engaging with these manufacturers. Um, and, and I really enjoyed my time at Tracker. Uh, what I didn't know about, uh, which was kind of happening in the background, was I was forming myself into kind of a product manager. Um, I directly led the, the development of Tracker's new product, uh, which would have been the first indoor tracking device uh, called Atlas. Um, I led the product development for the smallest Bluetooth tracker out there, which is called the Tracker Pixel and then the integrations into a lot of different um, third-party applications uh, like Extra Wallet and Cross Pen. Uh, but I also was taking these learnings, was working with manufacturers, was working with cross-functional teams um, to really build this product from the ground up. And that's just something I hadn't realized that I was building a skill set on. Um, and that skill set was highly transferable to other parts of the consumer electronic industry. Um, and that's exactly what I carried on with me uh, to my time at Apple. Uh, so in October, November of 2016, um, Apple had reached out to me and said, hey, you know, we have a opening on the iPhone systems team, um, on the, the hardware iPhone systems team. And at that time, you know, for me, it was like, wow, like this is awesome. Like this is a once in a lifetime opportunity. Um, if you had asked any of my friends, I'm a huge uh, Apple fanboy, 
-hmm. all of my devices are uh, Apple, uh, and I, I'm very proud of the stuff that they built there, um, regardless of how expensive they are. Um, but it was just an opportunity for me to take a lot of the things that I had worked on and the skills that, that I had built um, earlier on in my career to apply it to big tech. Um, and when I was interviewing, one of the things that the team was really kind of portraying on me was that Apple, even though it's a very big company, uh, the iPhone systems team operates very much like a startup. And it was very true um, as I was, you know, when you get into Apple, a lot of the processes aren't very well defined. Um, there's a lot of responsibility that each individual holds. And you'll see a lot of similarities between the work environment that Apple had, um, especially on that team with um, the, the startup lifestyle that I've seen at Tracker. Of course, it's not, you know, um, exactly the same, but, you know, it wasn't the feeling that you were a small cog in the big wheel. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and so I really enjoyed my time, of, of course, at Apple and happy to get into that. But that's really how I had transitioned from you know, my early academic time to my time at Apple. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's really interesting. And um, yeah, like you mentioned, you went from uh, U of I, which is in the Midwest, to Penn in the East Coast. And then um, you decided then to go to California. What was, what was so compelling about uh, going to California after... Uh, receiving your master's? Uh, there's, uh, I mean, I mean, Silicon Valley, right? I mean, I think that you talk to a lot of the engineers um, and everyone wants to go to California. There's a big tech uh, ecosystem out there. Um, you know, today it's a little different in that tech is dispersed into other parts of the country, like Austin and Seattle. Um, Denver's got a booming tech uh, ecosystem. Chicago's also uh, starting to grow there as well. But uh, in when I was at U of I uh, in 2011, the, California was basically your only option when it came to tech. Um, and, and that's where the big tech companies were. That's where the innovation was happening. And uh, every, every engineer wanted to end up there. Um, I had a lot of friends, funny enough, one of my uh, really good friends uh, throughout my time at U of I is from California. And uh, I, I, I kept asking him, like, I can't believe you're, you know, he had the opportunity to go to Berkeley. And I was like, I can't believe you're in the Midwest uh, of all places when you could be in Berkeley in the middle of the tech ecosystem uh, in the Bay Area. He was studying computer engineering. Uh, you know, but their grass is always green on the other side. Um, people in the Bay Area want to sometimes get out and try new things. Um, U of I is a fantastic school for engineering, and I think there's that opportunity as well. But it was just this, uh, you know, it was a this kind of land where engineers and tech just existed that you couldn't get anywhere else, and everyone wanted a stake in the game. So uh, for me. I would have taken any job that put me out there um, versus anywhere else in the country. Got it, got it. Um, yeah, that's interesting. And um, just transitioning here, uh, can you talk about your transition from a big tech company like Apple to then going to a VC firm um, which has a specific thesis um, related to trying to help solve for, for climate change? and um, could you kind of just talk about how that, that 
interest has uh, was sparked into and um, why why you decided to make that transition yeah um, so so I while I was at Apple um, I had a lot of fun um, helping to, to launch uh, a few generations of iPhones but I think one thing I really wanted to understand is the bigger picture of how do you fundamentally operate and run a company from the ground up um, mm -hmm. I think at my time at tracker I had built this um, fondness for entrepreneurship and I knew at some point in my career I'd want to go back to the startup ecosystem but I didn't know which side I want to be on did I want to be on the investor side or on the operational side running a company so um, I very quickly learned that I didn't have some of the core financial understandings of the investor scene. And so I decided I'd go and get an MBA. Um, so after Apple, I actually uh, went to the Yale School of Management um, to go and pursue an MBA where I can, one, have a better understanding of just business in general, because uh, I hadn't had a formal education in undergrad or grad school in just business and operations. Uh, at the same time have a specific focus in early stage investing. So one of the first things I did when I got to Yale was I tried to find um, opportunities where I can get some hands-on experience. Um, and I was very fortunate to join Helios Capital um, as an intern, um, and, or I guess as an MBA associate, um, and help them source and, and diligence um, early stage startups specifically uh, in what they call Industry 4.0, um, which are just basically companies that are working on breakthrough technologies and working to commercialize those technologies. Uh, our main focus at, at Helios was, you know, while broad um, Industry 4.0, over 60% of the investments uh, was in the aerospace industry. Uh, specifically in companies that were looking to advance um, uh, the human reach into orbit. So we made a lot of investments out there. Um, some of the investments that we made was in OrbitFab, um, which is literally building gas stations in space. Um, by far, it's one of my favorite investments that we've made, um, and, and, and some others. But, but really, it was an opportunity for me to take my engineering background and apply it to um, the investor domain, right? Um, how do you look at a company that's building cutting edge technology um, in the hardware domain, uh, but also looking at it from a business perspective, right? Um, if this business does grow, what are what is the potential investor return? Um, how big could it impact the, the industry and which other industries is it gonna disrupt? Uh, and it got me, to look at startups and it got me to look at these early stage um, companies in a very different light. Um, because when you're an engineer and you're working in tech, you really are, have a siloed vision of how you see companies run and it's very product focused. Um, but when you get to the investor side of the table, you have a bigger picture of it, right? Um, the product is not, yes, the product is the main driver of a company, but it's not the sole driver. Um, and there's a lot of different other facets that uh, a founder needs to consider uh, when both running a company, but also growing a company. Uh, so 
my time uh, at Helios was great because it gave me that exposure, um, and it very quickly translated over to me eventually starting my own company um, as of last year. That's awesome. Um, and just just real quick, um, you you mentioned that that one investment at Helios was building gas stations in space. <laughs> could you? That's that's that just caught my attention. Um, could you go into the value prop of that of that company? Yeah. Um, so you think of um, these big uh, uh, rocket ships, right? Like mm-hmm. SpaceX and NASA and JPL, and and they're sending um, quite literally hundreds of thousands of pounds of um, material into space, whether it's and that might be composed of metal, of fuel, um, and of other particles and debris, um, but there's a specific thing called the payload, right? And um, this is like very specific objects that you want to send to space. And there's a cost, there's a cost per kilogram. And you might think that because the overall rocket ship, right, is hundreds of thousands of pounds and kilograms, that when you look at it from a very small scale, that you can distribute the cost um, quite evenly across the board and the cost per kilogram will be quite low. Uh, but actually, if you want to send another uh, kilogram, right, of anything into space, it costs that rocket ship uh, tens of thousands of dollars, quite literally. Um, it, it, I think it's past $50,000 per kilogram. And so what people are doing right now is they're putting a lot of emphasis um, on adding an extra kilogram of gas. Because once you send, let's say, a satellite out in orbit, right, that satellite is only functional until it runs out of energy or gas. Um, and then it just becomes space debris. And so if you want to extend the life of that uh, satellite or whatever object you're sending to space, you have to just either add fuel in some sort. Um, and there's a cost adding fuel. What OrbitFab has done is They've said, well, why don't you just send your uh, object into space with the least amount of uh, fuel required? And then once you're in space, you uh, you can go and refuel anytime you want. Uh, that removes the concern of very expensive launches. And that removes the concern of the lifespan of that object that you're sending into space. Um, so now very quickly, you're going to remove space debris um, accumulation of space debris, you're going to enhance uh, or extend the lifespan of objects that you send to space, and you're going to reduce the cost of launch, um, or the initial cost of launch at least. Um, so it's a very compelling um, value proposition, um, and I think that as the more companies start exploring different um, you know, things that we can do in space uh, and trying to reach further and further into space, that the need for expanded lifespan uh, will be more and more important. Yeah, that's that's, that's really interesting, actually. Um, yeah, hopefully those gas stations can help our space army at some point. Absolutely. <laughs> um, but yeah, before uh, we get into uh, the company that you're building right now, I do want to talk about um, your time as a fellow at Insight. Um, I, I know there's a lot of 
these different um, leadership programs out there right now. Uh, you were at Insight. I know there's another one called On Deck. Um, could you kind of describe what the purpose of these uh, leadership programs are, and then also uh, maybe uh, a way that you've positive positively benefited from um, from this program? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the Insight Fellows is a student-run organization um, that's primarily composed of graduate students at top-tier universities. And the primary focus is um, to sit at the intersection of um, startups, venture capital, and consulting. Um, and really, over the course of the time, Insight Fellows work with a select number of startups um, who have um, some operational struggles uh, and the fellows work to understand how these startups can operate in a more efficient way and get to their next milestone faster. I can't disclose either the companies that we've worked with uh, or that I've personally worked with, but during my time there, it's been uh, quite fantastic. You uh, are basically put in as an employee at these startups, uh, working uh, basically every day to understand what are the problems and how can you how can you work uh, and create a team to, to solve these problems with a very different uh, perspective. And fundamentally, you're a early stage consultant. Um, and that's really what you are. Uh, so your group with maybe four to five other Insight Fellows, and you'll work together to understand the problem, understand how you're going to go about uh, solving the problem, and then actually going and solving that problem. Um, beyond that, I think the Insight Fellow is also a really great opportunity for students to get exposed to the greater Insight Fellows network. Um, Insight fellows have gone to start their own companies, have gone to work in the venture capital industry, um, and also have gone to work at very high level roles at early to mid-stage startups. Um, so it's really a great opportunity for you to network, for you to understand the different options um, as you think about graduating, as well as a funnel of very interesting jobs that are out there in the market um, and get your foot in early before anyone else does. Like Insight Fellows, um, as you had mentioned, there are other organizations and I think every organization has its own unique value um, prop for students. Uh, I think the Insight Fellows is a really good opportunity for students that are aspiring to enter the early stage startup ecosystem in an operational or investment role. I see. I see. Um, and then is uh, was being a part of Insight. Uh, what prompted you to want to begin your own venture, or was that something you've always had your eyes on? Yeah, it, it's definitely something I've had my eyes on for for a while. Um, I don't think Insight um, had a very direct impact. However, I got to work with a a company. Um, that uh, actually the founder of that company was also an ex-Apple employee. Uh, 
and I, I quickly got to understand how you can leverage some of your past experiences into starting a company and how you should really think about structuring the way that you uh, approach both fundraising as well as uh, a lot of the pro initial product development um, based on your past experiences uh, and your network. So, so that, that kind of um, was interesting, seeing a very similar uh, person go through uh, the startup founder uh, journey. Yeah, yeah, that's, uh, that's very cool. Um, could you now just go into um, your, your, your company that you're building, Build, um, and what, um, what problem you're solving for, and then also um, just how it's been growing and starting your own company? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so first and foremost, um, Build is a software platform that helps customers and companies collaborate in real time with their external manufacturers. Um, and we keep it purposely broad because manufacturing engagements take form in many different ways. Um, manufacturing engagements can be you working with your packaging supplier, telling them to shift artwork to the left by 0.5 millimeters. Uh, manufacturing engagements can also mean working with your offshore uh, you know, PCB manufacturer telling them that uh, they need to create this new board that has different tolerances and different uh, functionality as some of your previous prototypes. Um, but what really lacks in the industry are the tools to have these very efficient manufacturing engagements. Um, so when I was at Tracker, a lot of the manufacturing actually all the manufacturing communication uh, was done over Excel, email, and PowerPoint. Um, and when you work with offshore manufacturers, they love working on uh, the, the MS suite, right? Because um, it's universal. Uh, it's often pre-installed on most laptops that you buy, um, and it's highly accessible. And so very quickly, all the manufacturing engagements within the industry has pivoted um, and sat on MS Suite uh, and been sent over email. And when I was at Tracker, I was kind of astonished by the lack of tools that we were given to work with these manufacturers. Um, and it's particularly difficult when you're working with manufacturers overseas because of both the language barrier, but also the time zone barrier. Uh, you're not working in real time, you're kind of sending an update, they're gonna wake up, they're gonna see that update and they're gonna respond on their own time. You have a very short window to actually work together and collaborate in real time. And when that window opens up, the tools don't support that communication. Um, and so what I figured is that, well, we're just tracker. We don't have um, the fancy tools that other players in, in the industry have. Um, Fast forward to my time at Apple, we're running the same tools. We're running our communication um, off Excel, off PowerPoint, uh, and off email. Uh, Excel-based issue list. So when a manufacturer reviews a design and they find 5 to 10 to 20 different um, things that they want to give you feedback on, 
these are literally different rows on an Excel document um, where they're taking stale screenshots of and annotating it in kind of like MS Paint. Um, and I was just astonished, right? I was like, I mean, Apple um, is by far the biggest company in the world. Um, it's definitely the biggest hardware company in the world. I can't believe that um, a tool has, has, does not exist for Apple to communicate with its manufacturers. Uh, and I, I would have to imagine that Apple has one of the most expansive manufacturing networks. Uh, and there's just no single tool for them to streamline all their communication and make it real time. Um, and and these, these antiquated tools in that environment cause delays in getting products made faster, right? You have a design, you're ready to go, you send it to your manufacturers, um, the manufacturers are taking days to respond to your to your design, right? They're going to come back a day or two days later and say, oh, hey, we have these 10 different things that we need you to fix. And then you're going to look at it and you're going to respond and then they're going to take another couple days to respond. And that just slows down the time from when you think you're ready with the design to when that design is actually um, in production. And oftentimes, you know, Apple would compensate uh, by that with downstream engagements, um, such as how can we shorten our shipping time? Um, and while you can go from your standard three-day delivery to a one-day expedited, de de expedited delivery, that's not the answer to shorten your manufacturing engagements. The core problem is not, um, hey, we'll just have the same process and we'll make it better with you know, shorter shipping, it's let's leverage shorter shipping, but also make these engagements better to get our products even faster. Right. Um, and so, so that's really the problem that sits in the market. And I explored different opportunities um, or different tools out, out uh, there to see what are uh, other companies doing and how are they, you know, dealing with this problem. Maybe Apple is just really dumb, right? And they haven't found that tool. Uh, I had some buddies over at Facebook um, that, you know, they're, they're doing the same thing. They're on Excel, they're on PowerPoint, um, and they're just getting uh, the design feedback like that. I have, uh, you know, buddies over at medium-sized companies like uh, L'Oreal's Tech Incubator, for example. Uh, one of my buddies is the director of uh, product management out there in New York, and they're running the same processes, right? Excel-based issue list, PowerPoint slides. Um, and so very quickly, you can see that there, the industry hasn't adopted a solution. Um, there's been attempts to, to provide a tool, um, but each attempt has kind of fallen short in their own respective way. Um, some of the attempts have been driven by the EDA tools. So the EDA tools are the actual design tools that the engineers work on. Um, but that requires um, adoption on both fronts. Uh, and if you look at the market, right, oftentimes the same tool that the designer is working on is not the same tool that the manufacturer is going to be reviewing those documents in. Um, and so very quickly, um, you, have a, you have a solution, but it can only sit on one environment and is not portable to other environments. And so we knew that in this, in our approach, that we would have to be able to support uh, all different environments and all different systems. We'd have to support all different file types. Um, 
within the PCB domain, you can receive a file in three to five different formats. Within the mechanical domain, the same thing exists. That's because each EDA tool um, has their own uh, output, right? Or each designer will have their own preference on how, what the output file looks like. And so we knew that we had to be agnostic to file type, for, to file type and uh, we knew that we would have to be um, independent of the actual design tools that the engineers are working on and the manufacturers are working on. We'd have to be a third-party tool and not like a plugin. And so with that unique approach, we've, uh, we're working on a, a product that we really think will shorten design feedback cycles, will enable products to get to market faster, um, and, and really will enable more validation and ver verification in the earliest stages of prototyping and production. And, uh, and with that, can you describe the end-to-end -end customer, like typical customer journey um, that wants to use Build? Absolutely. So we have, um, you know, a lot of people, so basically the first thing they'll do is they'll, it's a, it's a lot like a product management tool. So you'll first get onto the platform um, and you'll create the product. Um, and so we'd like to use the example of um, tracker. So you'll create a tracker or maybe even an iPhone. And within the product, there are different subcomponents. Those are called projects. Uh, you'll have an electrical component to it. You'll have a mechanical component to it. You might have a battery. You might have a chemical component to it, whatever it might be. Um, and then within each project, you'll have your design files that you'll upload and you'll, you'll uh, upload your manufacturers that you want to communicate these design files to. And Build will automatically take these design files and share it with your manufacturers. Your manufacturers can view those files natively on the build platform and comment and give feedback directly on the build platform. So when they do their reviews, they don't have to download, I mean, they can, but they don't have to download the file anymore and open up in their own tool. They can do it directly on the build platform and they can annotate and provide feedback directly on that same platform. Um, and as soon as they do, as soon as you hit that first feedback item, the customer or the company will get notified that your manufacturer has provided you feedback on this design and on this location. And you'll be able to communicate in real time. Um, the analogy I like to give people that are a little bit more unfamiliar in the hardware domain is that if you are an author, right, and you write a 100-page book and you give it to your publisher, um, and you give it to your publisher over um, a Microsoft Word document and email. Your publisher is gonna take about a week to two weeks to review that document and send it back to you. And in that week or two weeks, you're really going to achieve nothing. Um, your alternative, and, and, then, and then when you receive that document, right, uh, in a week or two, you'll then spend maybe three to four days reviewing all the feedback and making the edits, and then you'll keep iterating like that. The alternate is that now the author can go and send that same document over uh, Google Docs, right? And the publisher can in real time 
go and add comments and add their feedback. And as soon as the first feedback item is given, the author is notified and can start working on those edits a lot earlier on the process. They don't have to wait the one to two weeks kind of just sitting on their hands doing nothing. And so what that enables is faster, you know, iteration cycles. The author is going to be able to finish the book faster and get it out to the market faster. Um, it's going to enable a lot more validation. Um, they'll have a lot more times to iterate and work together. Um, and that's really what we're trying to bring to the hardware industry is this real-time collaboration, faster design cycle feedbacks for the hardware industry. Um, and so, yeah, they just, you know, the customer and the manufacturer collaborate in real time, close all their design feedback. The customer can go and then, you know, get all the approvals and then submit the order directly on build. And then it goes into production. Um, so it's really the product management tool uh, specifically built for the hardware industry. Oh, that was really cool. I, I really like that analogy since I'm not too familiar with uh, uh, manufacturing. So yeah, that's that's really neat. Um, and just kind of wrapping up here, like what's what's something you're most excited about uh, in, in build in, in the coming months, years, or um, just like maybe like a feature you're working on? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so recently announced um we we're part of the techstar seattle accelerator oh, congrats. um thank you um and so we are one of 10 companies that would be uh part of the 2021 uh seattle accelerator and we're really excited to work with uh our managing director isaac um isaac has a lot of experience in the prototyping domain um, he actually started his first company in the 3D CAD industry and sold it, uh, sold his first company to uh, a big player in that industry. And so we're really excited to, to work with him to get his insights and learn from his experiences. It's been um, a, a tremendous uh, time learning about the other companies in the cohort, and we're really excited to work with them. What we're also really excited more from a product standpoint is um, really getting our MVP out to our early customers. Um, we've got a lot of interest across the board and we're really excited to finally fulfill um, a platform that's much needed in the industry and give it to these customers and really learn how they leverage build into their processes. Um, and then, you know, of course, we, we also just closed our uh, first fundraising round. Um, and so we're excited to finally um, have some money in the bank and, and get some initial hires um, and really build out the, the build team. Um, and then we're excited to, to see where the journey lies ahead. Yeah, that sounds great. Um, yeah, con congrats on both uh, getting into Techstars and then also the funding. That's definitely big for... Uh... Um, you know, somebody who's trying to build uh, a, a unique solution as, as you're doing. But um, yeah, that pretty much wraps up this interview. Um, thank you so much for coming on. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thanks. Take care.